This podcast is supported by award number 2019JUFX K001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, research findings, and recommendations presented here are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reflections on Research, the podcast where hopefully we make talking about research more interesting than reading a peer-reviewed journal article. I am your host, Mike Geringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. And we're proud to bring you this podcast today based on the sponsorship of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP. Uh, They fund the National Mentoring Resource Center that this podcast is part of and also fund a lot of work in the youth mentoring space. So we certainly thank OJJDP for their support. And we'll be talking a little bit more at the end of the broadcast today about how you can get some free assistance from the National Mentoring Resource Center if you so choose for your mentoring program. The point of this podcast, like I said, is to talk about research around youth mentoring, youth relationships more broadly, uh, in a variety of spheres, uh, education, workplaces, and hopefully make it more engaging and, and fun and, and help you learn a few things that you can apply to your work with young people. So today we're going to be talking about a topic that I know that many folks that work in the mentoring space have been thinking about and talking about a lot over the last few years, and that is social capital. And, you know, we often ask mentors to bring their authentic selves to these relationships and kind of share who they are with the young people they're mentoring But I think we also ask mentors to do a little bit more than that. We ask them to share their networks, their resources, their connections, you know, the people and places that they can connect young people to as well. And and that's really what we're going to be talking about today uh, with our guests, uh, who has written a fantastic book on the topic of social capital, primarily in education, but also, I think, extending over into the world of mentoring. Uh, That book is called Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. It's a great segue in introducing my guest today, and that is Julia Freeland Fisher, who is the Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute. She leads a team that educates policymakers and community leaders on the power of disruptive innovation in the K-12 and higher education spheres. Her team aims to transform monolithic factory model education systems into student-centered designs that educate every student successfully and enable each student to reach his or her fullest potential. Uh, Julie has published and spoken extensively on this topic as well as on the topics of uh, the ed tech market, blended learning, competency-based education, and the future of the nation's schools. So welcome, Julia. Thanks for having me, Mike. So I want to start off uh, kind of talking a little bit broadly here. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book and the topic of social capital, but I was not familiar with the Christensen Institute when I first heard about your research and and the work of the Institute. So I was wondering if for our guests, uh, you wouldn't mind describing a little bit the work of the Institute and kind of how you all came to be interested in in this topic. Absolutely. So Clayton Christensen, one of our founders who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, was a leading professor at the Harvard Business School. And Clay, among many other things, coined the term disruptive innovation back in the 80s, studying of all things disk drives, which has very little to nothing to do with what we'll be talking about today, except for the fact that um, that research led him to understand some of the causal mechanisms behind innovation and which innovations scale and why. Um, And fast forward to about 11, 12 years ago, Clay um, and my colleague, Michael Horn, uh, and their colleague, Jason Wang, founded the Clayton Christensen Institute as a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank that takes those theories of innovation and applies them to some of the challenges confronting the public sector, including education. And we were, until until semi-recently, we were sort of best known for our work in online and blended learning. This was pre-COVID-19 and the enormous 
effort uh, afoot right now in the nation around distance learning. But for over a decade, we really looked at where online learning stands to expand access and affordability and flexibility in education and where it falls short on that. But when I joined the Institute uh, almost seven years ago, while I was excited about that sort of side of, of ed tech and learning, I felt like we weren't talking about the whole of the opportunity equation. Because despite the fact that what young people know matters immensely for their prospects in the job market and in life, we also know that who you know matters. Um, and so I sort of set out, it was a little bit of a side hustle for the first <laughs> three or four years, but I sort of set out to understand initially what technologies were emerging that were helping students form connections that they might not otherwise have into the job market and to support them in post-secondary pathways. And then that really expanded into a whole body of work around numerous innovations, both in education and, and in the mentoring field that put relationships within reach for young people and allow them to leverage those relationships as their goals shift over time. Great. Thank you. And I appreciate kind of getting a little bit of the backstory there about um, how and why you came to be interested in this and and connecting it all the way back to, to Clay's uh, kind of history with disruptive innovation and, and kind of trying to figure out, you know, what are the levers that change things in meaningful ways? We often only recognize that that's happening after it's happened, right? No one knew Uber's going to be Uber uh, until it's Uber. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, wow, that, that worked. And so I appreciate you all trying to be kind of on the front end of that and and kind of maybe drive some of that with your your work. Yeah, and I'll say like I, you know, I, I I know less about how innovation as a word lands in the mentoring world. I know in the education world, it can be essentially code for try anything new, <laughs> um, or for essentially trial and error. And um, although I don't think our theories are sort of perfect uh, theories of causation, our hope is that looking through the lens of innovation theory, we can actually get past just mere trial and error innovation and actually design solutions on the front end that have more hope of scaling and sticking over time. So that's that's our mission in a lot of ways um, and, and excited to talk about where that sort of intersects with putting putting more relationships within reach for young people. Before we get too deep into this conversation, I, I do want to maybe just define social capital a little bit for our audience. Um, you know, I, I think I know what that means. I, I think our listeners probably have a sense of it, but you do take some time in your book to kind of really lay out what we mean and don't mean by this this term. So how do you think about it and, and kind of why are you suggesting, I think, that it's so powerful for young people's lives? Absolutely. So this term social capital, um, you may or may not hear it thrown around a lot. We have a quote in the book from one researcher who sort of wryly described it as a quote unquote, wonderfully elastic term, um, which for anyone doing research is what that wonderfully sort of snuck in there. Um, but the basic concept, it's most basic level, it's the notion that networks and relationships contain value, right? So we talk about financial capital as dollars that that contain value. We talk about human capital, what you know and can do that can translate into value in the labor market. And social capital is the idea that your networks themselves contain value and resources. We, of course, couldn't help our, ourselves as a think tank from creating our own special definition to add to the myriad definitions out there in the academy for our, for our book. But the reason why is that a lot of research on sort of adult level social capital, I think, misses a particular dynamic that we need to be sensitive to when we're thinking about young people and the networks at their disposal, which is that the value um, networks can offer in some ways, some of the instrumental value, a researcher might call it, that networks can offer may hinge on a young person's goals, right? What they want to achieve. And they may still be figuring out and sort of um, forging their sense of those goals and purpose. And so our definition in, in the book um, is social capital is young people's access to and ability to mobilize relationships that might help them further their potential and their goals as those goals emerge and inevitably shift over time. So a mouthful, but I think for anyone working at the program level with young people, keeping in mind that a flexible stock of social capital is actually really critical if we want to be giving young people options and being being responsive to their shifting interests and passions over time. No, that's great. And I appreciate that you use the word instrumental there, because I think that is a word that will be familiar to mentoring folks. We often talk in our field about, you know, developmental relationships. And I think the work of, you know, many mentoring programs is really about 
uh, kind of the personal side of this, you know, role modeling, good behaviors, teaching values, how you carry yourself in the world. But I often think, you know, when I look at perhaps the most effective mentoring programs are the ones that blend that with, as you put it, instrumental support. And that can come in a lot of different flavors, right? So for youth that have a a mental health uh, need, you know, sometimes the best thing a mentor can do is make sure that you're taking your meds as you're supposed to or driving you to your appointment so you don't miss uh, your meeting with your therapist. Uh, It comes in many shapes and sizes. And I know we'll get into kind of the practical ways that knowing more people and having more folks in your network um, can help youth. But was happy to hear you say that word because I, I think this feels like a very instrumental um, topic when I think about how it's applied in, in young people's lives. So uh, given that this is a podcast that's about research, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of the research that you looked at when putting your book together, because uh, you are not a researcher by by trade, I believe. And so, you know, you had to go out and kind of find information that you know, hopefully confirmed or maybe didn't uh, your hypothesis as you started to work on this book. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit, you know, what was, what really influenced you? What research did you find out there that let you know you were on the right path here? Yeah, it was, um, it was a sort of (laughs) meandering through the forest (laughs) exercise to be really candid, um, because, you know, part of what that wonderfully elastic term social capital, social capital has actually been studied across myriad disciplines. So political science, uh, many people will have heard of Robert Putnam, who's a political scientist who's written a lot about the decline of sort of civic engagement and correlating decline of stocks of social capital at the community level. Economists have looked over time at the sort of returns on networks. Um, And then finally, obviously, sociologists have spent a ton of time thinking about how our relationships and the context in which our relationships unfold shape all sorts of outcomes, not just education, not just access to opportunity. So it was it was a, a deep and long sort of lit review exercise for me. But what I was really interested in, I think I'll name one researcher in particular who I'm a huge fan of because in some ways he not not because he confirmed some of what I was saying, he actually um, pushed me on some of my thinking but because of one of his recent discoveries. So uh, a gentleman named Mario Luis Small is a sociologist at Harvard University. And among many other contributions to the field, one of the things that he wrote about um, in a, in a book, book called Unintended Gains, uh, which is about childcare centers in New York City and, and the networks of particularly mothers formed across childcare centers, is the concept that institutions themselves are brokers of social capital. And the reason why that uh, kind of nugget was such an important and valuable insight for me and the, and the sorts of innovations I was looking to study was that a lot of social capital re- research historically has taken place, like I said, at the level of sort of the community or the neighborhood. Um, and that's incredibly important, right? Uh, particularly when we think about young people, they inherit a network through their family and their community and their neighborhood, and there's all sorts of assets there. But when we think about where, where might schools fit in helping to build on students' social capital assets, um, this concept that institutions could be, in Mario Louise Small's words, purposefully or non-purposefully designed to do that is an incredibly powerful concept. And so I, the, and the, the other reason I'll, I'll just like harp on him for one more second, because I think he's such an important voice in this space, it wasn't that Mario Louise Small's, all of his writing was confirming my idea that like, oh, networks matter in all the ways that I'm arguing. He also, one of his more recent books called Someone to Talk to, which you may have heard of, is a a study of um, how graduate students sort of seek support in their first year of graduate school. And and part of what what Mario-Louis Small was trying to do was to question one of the long-held assumptions in sociology research that we tend to confide in what sociologists call our strong tie networks, that we turn to those who we have very high levels of trust and frequent interaction with. And they're the people we, we lean on when we're in a moment of transition or a moment of struggle, um, which the transition to graduate school obviously can be very overwhelming. And what, what he found was that, in fact, these graduate students were not just turning to their quote unquote confidants or close ties, strong ties. They were confiding in people they had barely met before, like Uber driver level uh, strangers. And, and the reason why I think that's really important and it pushed me is that I think we can 
we can have these mental models in education about what's best for young people without constantly revisiting the sort of actual behaviors that young people engage in. Um, and these graduate students, part of Mario Luis Small's conclusion there was like, first of all, who we lean on and who we depend on may be more spontaneous than <laughs> we would like to believe from a sort of um, behavioral research standpoint. But second, that sometimes you want a low stakes relationship in your life. Sometimes that high touch, caring adult or mentor or sibling or the person who really has taken a bet on you is not the person you want to tell that you're struggling. And I think that's just one of many like kind of provocations from the research that, uh, that I appreciate from him and that can complicate but ultimately clarify what we're talking about when we talk about putting young people in relationship. So that's a long whatever, just like me in praise of Marley Small uh, chat. And, and I'm happy to talk about other research, but that's the type of that concept of institutions as brokers and the notion that we need to keep pushing our assumptions about who young people turn to for what were both really important, I think, updates to some of the more longstanding sociological research. I appreciate that long answer. Um, I'm not terribly familiar with Mario's research, but I uh, we'll definitely be seeking it out. And you said a couple of things there that really resonated with me uh, as a mentoring person. One is just that I feel like this field really emphasizes that your mentor should be as much of a strong tie person as possible, right? That is almost how we conceive of it. And, you know, if you sign up in a program, you know, hey, mentor this kid for a decade if you can. And, and be literally as close to a, uh, you know, a, a big brother that's called that for a reason, right? Is that's kind of our conceptualization of the role. But you are very correct that people will often seek help from folks that they are not that connected to for a lot of reasons, embarrassment and, and fear of uh, letting people down. And I mean, what's the cliche? Everyone goes to the bar and talks to the bartender, right? That person or your hairstylist or whatever, right? Like those people get the real tea, so to speak. And so, you know, that really makes me think that surrounding young people, maybe with some relationships that have value, but also quite, or they're not as high stakes, right? They don't feel uh, like this thing that I have to make perfect. And, and so I'm really glad that you brought that idea up because it resonates with me. It also makes me think about something that Gene Rhodes and Sam McQuillan and other mentoring folks have said on this podcast before, which is we have a long history of research around training lay people to deliver pretty decent evidence-based uh, mental health interventions, right? And so, and these are often delivered by people that do not have any real strong tie to the the person they're uh, kind of delivering this to. And you know, those programs can often be very effective, right? And so really capitalizing on those weak tie relationships at the right moment on the right topic for a young person, uh, that's a really neat idea. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I want to talk a little bit about the other thing that you mentioned around his research, which is the role of institutions in all of this and, and specifically schools. And I think uh, when I look at your book kind of broadly, I think you make a really excellent and really compelling point that American schools don't currently do a great job of connecting young people to other adults, uh, either within the building or certainly without it, uh, in terms of career passions or interests that the young person may have, others that can help them uh, on their educational journey. So one of my favorite sections in your book is you talk about uh, a way of reimagining our schools about what they could look like, how they could operate in ways that would provide students with much more of these uh, these relationships. I believe you have this metaphor of uh, the walled garden. And I'm just hoping you could describe for our audience kind of what you meant by that phrase and, and how you see schools needing to transform in order to provide this to, to young people. Totally. Yeah. And I'll say... One thing you said just stood out to me, and it's partly, uh, you know, when you when you write a book, which makes me sound way more important than I am, but when you write a book, like instantly upon sending it to the publisher, you want to like burn the entire thing and rewrite it. And there's one there's one way in which I I think I sh I I didn't give schools necessarily short shrift, but I would have languaged it differently. That it's not necessarily that schools don't do a great job at this; it's that we don't actually know. <laughs> 
we, we don't collect good information or data in terms of the extent to which schools are brokering positive relationships for young people and doing so in an equitable way. And so I think, you know, if we really take um, that frame of non-purposeful broker seriously from Mary Louise Small's research, it's like, I actually think all schools are non-purposeful brokers, right? We, like we shove kids into this building with other adults and, and we have them do extracurriculars and there's all sorts of touch points. It's just, we see relationships as inputs in that environment rather than outcomes in their own right that, that could merit being uh, measured. So just with that caveat, this, this concept of a walled garden you talk about, there's a couple, there's a couple geneses of that term, if I will, that I'll talk through. Um, so the first has to do with, we were excited about the rise of both technology tools and community-based models that were expanding students' networks, explicitly putting relationships within reach for young people that might not otherwise have been in reach because of both where they lived, maybe like geographic constraints, but also the time and cost constraints of like coordinating even something as simple as a guest speaker coming into a classroom to talk about a career, right? Just to sound, just to keep it really simple. And although there's exciting tools, if you think about the way that education institutions adopt tools and models, very understandably, safety and security is going to come first, right? Like, any parent is not going to be okay with like random strangers wandering in and out of a school building, nor should they. But in some ways, that sort of um, some combination of stranger danger, fear of liability, and the mere coordination cost of bringing outsiders into schools has led us to a very insular way of doing school. And so a walled garden is sort of a, both a metaphor and a literal technology term for how you can create safe spaces where those connections are still within reach, but done so with an eye towards safety, security, privacy, all of the things that we want to preserve for young people within their educational setting. The second reason why I love that term, there's three, just to preview. The second reason I love that term is a book that I'm a new parent, but I, I started reading parenting books long before having a kid because of the line of work I'm in. Um, and there's a book by Alison Gopnik called The Gardener and the Carpenter, which is a little bit more about how young people develop healthfully and a little bit of a manifesto against the kind of helicopter parenting model that's out there where you try and sort of craft a perfect child in your image um, and instead create what she refers to as a garden, which is a nurturing environment where that young person can build his or her own identity and sort of explore. And, and it's more about that nurturing environment and less about architecting the perfect child. So that's another walled garden metaphor I like. And then the last, this is where I'll turn into the innovation tech wonk for a second is that if you think about the evolution of sort of flexible systems, often they start off in a more wall garden way. Um, and this is not an endorsement of Amazon, but if we think back to early days of Amazon, before it was the marketplace for all things, <laughs> it was an online bookseller um, that was in some ways like very narrowly just doing that one task for its customers. And it was only until it sort of figured out how to orchestrate that, that it could then add other products to its offerings and then become a two-way marketplace where other sellers can sell their wares. So the reason why that analogy is important is not because Amazon is the answer to social capital for young people, but because if we think about the evolution of a flexible school model that puts young people in relationship with more, more people than just their peers and teachers, the, that system will have to evolve along the way. And I think we're at this initial stage of, again, a walled garden. Appreciate the, the detailed thoughts there. And congrats on becoming a, a new parent. Uh, my kids are in the teen years now. So everything I read and all those books uh, when I was in your shoes, none of it applied. It was all, it was all meaningless. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But it is interesting. I mean, you know, that tension as a parent, you and I think as a mentor, you want it to be perfect, right? And the reality is young people, that garden will have some weeds, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, your job is to just tend to it and, and uh, help it be the best garden it can be. But I appreciate you unpacking that metaphor. There's a lot into that. And, and that section of the book really stood out to me. And uh, yes, and I do want to reiterate for any educators that may be listening to this, Julie is a big fan of your work. She is <laughs> not an opponent of America's schools, but I think 
you recognize rightly that there are some innovative ways that we can be supporting young people even better, uh, particularly as they transition into their eventual adult selves. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit here about the last thing you mentioned, which is technology and the role of that. And, you know, I think the entire nation, because of the pandemic and schools shutting down and mentoring programs, not being able to get mentors and youth together in person, uh, everyone is trying to figure out the role that technology can play in creating uh, new relationships, strengthening the ones that are already there. And you talk a lot in your book about kind of what a reimagined relationship-centered school would look like and could look like and and the role that technology can play in that. And so I guess my question for you is, given that we're in this kind of strange space right now where everyone's trying to figure out the intersection of technology and education even more than they were before, like, do you feel this is a good time for education to be trying this experiment and and trying that out or is now because things are so chaotic you know do we run the risk that we try some new ideas and they don't work because the world's kind of crazy right now and we abandon what would have been a really good journey to go on what are your thoughts on that yeah it's a really good question and obviously has been literally front of mind for for weeks now so maybe i'll take a step back and talk about Pre-pandemic, what we had identified as technology strengths and weaknesses in this space of building relationships and networks. So our big takeaway was twofold. One is that we have a whole bunch of technology out there, social media platforms, et cetera, that was not explicitly designed to um, necessarily put new relationships within reach for young people, or at least the right relationships within reach for young people, but is and this is a big caveat, like actually is quite well suited to disrupt the decay rates of relationships. Meaning if you store new relationships in your sort of digital Rolodex, be that LinkedIn or Facebook, because I'm an old person or Instagram or other other sites, you're able more efficiently than pre-social media to sort of stay connected, keep abreast with those connections and reactivate them if there's a moment in time when they would prove um, helpful to you. And and I think that's actually really important. Like that's an important role that those platforms have to play. It's not necessarily going to be the solution to finding all the supportive relationships you need, depending on your goals, right? It's not sort of like the cold call on LinkedIn version of networking. I have less faith in um, for young people, but let's not like totally dismiss those digital Rolodexes as having value. The second thing that we really unearthed as we looked at tools that were emerging explicitly to put new virtual connections within reach for young people, meaning virtual mentors, virtual coaches, virtual experts, even virtual peer groups, was to go back to that discussion we were having about um, strong and weak ties is really that technology does have a competitive advantage to diversify access to weak ties. We can do it more efficiently. We can reach people across geography, time, space. That, that might otherwise not be part of that weak tie network for young people. Now, all of that is to say, in the current moment of the pandemic, young people do not just need digital Rolodexes or weak ties, they need caring networks, and they need peer networks, and caring adults. And so I would be, it would be completely remiss to take those findings and say, oh, yeah, technology is perfect for preserving and upholding the strong web of care that we know young people need for healthy development. That's not what those tools were good at to begin with. And it would be, um, I think, a shame for their actual value proposition to propose that they are good enough to meet the demands of the moment. So my very long-winded answer then is that I think what we're seeing unfold right now is people trying to engage in rapid sustaining innovation, aka making these tools good enough, to meet the demands of the moment and to whether it's on enterprise tools like Zoom or some of the proprietary sort of mentoring platforms out there like I could be, you know, I think it will be a test. And I think the good news is that some of these platforms will improve more quickly than they would have uh, without the crisis, um, without the pandemic. The bad news, I think, is that there's an enormous risk that existing powerful, caring adult relationships in young people's lives will decay. And, and, and that we know from all of the research is 
will be hard to recover from. So I think it's just really important to put technology in its place and all of this, right? And I think we tried to do that in the book even before knowing what, where we'd find ourselves in, in summer 2020. You, you said a couple of things there that, that resonated with me. One is, I feel like you're right, this moment is very much about sustaining what was already there. And, you know, I'm hearing some things anecdotally from, you know, mentors and, and youth and programs that connecting virtually has been harder than they would have expected. Um, and not be for the reasons I would have guessed. I would have thought that it was kind of um, availability of internet and technology um, in homes, but that, you know, I think in this day and age is getting better. There's still obviously a digital divide, but I think it's a little bit less of an issue than it was maybe a decade ago. But it's more just having this relationship that was an in-person thing that often involved uh, either being out in the community or if it was at school, it was a chance to do something um, non-classroomy <laughs> during your day if you're a young person. And now that everything's all disrupted, I, I think it's weird for them to, they're having a hard time transitioning into just being that way together on a screen or over the phone, right? And uh, I also think the needs of young people have shifted substantially here, right? I mean, how many young people are in a home where there's unemployment for the first time in a long time or food insecurity or you know, they've lost a relative because of um, the the pandemic? So, you know, it, it's a really interesting time. And, and I think we're doing an okay job of trying to maintain those, but it's hard. I mean, we just got yesterday, I got survey results back. We did a little national survey of, of adults and found that of the people that said uh, they were mentoring a, a kid currently either in a program or outside of a program, and, and that was the majority by far, it was kind of natural mentors, 20% of them said that they hadn't talked to their mentee at all since this started. So that's one in five <laughs> that said it's just kind of done or it's on hiatus and I'm not giving any support. And so, you know, it's it's been tough for me to figure out, you know, what's the best way to, to try and address that? Should everyone sign up for some e-mentoring platform and dive into it? Or, or you know, are phone calls okay for now? It, it's really hard to know what the technology sweet spot is there. Um, yeah. I, I, and I think there's, there's some research that can guide the way, but it's, it's a little too blunt categorically to answer the questions you're asking, right? So we we cite um, Sherry Turkle, who would probably hate everything about my book <laughs> um, in our work, but she she recently wrote a book, not so recently, um, a while back wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation about the fact that technology is essentially killing our um, ability to empathize. And just even the presence of a cell phone on a table when you're having a conversation at dinner actually impacts the nature of that conversation, the quality of that conversation. But buried in that book is like one really interesting nugget of research on if you're using technology, what are the ways in which to build empathy? And one of the findings there is that the more multimodal the technology, the, the greater the likelihood that empathy is built, meaning, you know, email is worse than phone call is worse than video. And again, totally a broad set of uh, findings that I don't know we can apply sort of universally to mentoring programs. But I think what, again, like if there's, if I'm being too Pollyanna-ish, you can call me out. But I think one one question I have is that can, can some of these technologies become even richer on that sort of multimodality spectrum so that they're getting better and better given the constraints of the, of the moment. So that's just like one little little nugget. And, and, and I think last thing I'll say there is I think from a program implementation standpoint, as programs are grappling with how do we support our mentees, our mentors to keep these relationships going, there's also sort of the division of labor across those different modalities that I think is worth visiting, meaning like what do we use for text? What do we use for a phone call? What sorts of conversations do we want to have over video so that um, we're not just doing sort of spray and pray across a bunch of different platforms, which understandably, I think a lot of us have been doing uh, with the social distancing mandate. You know, it, it's interesting. 
I recently did a lit review on kind of the research on e-mentoring, right? And I think one of the things I was struck by there, you mentioned that the more modalities your technology can can you know encompass, the better. But it was funny. I saw really great examples of mentoring programs that were uh, purely text-based. They were some kind of bulletin board or email-based where the relationships were incredibly strong and deep, but it was challenging. And in often cases, those were folks that had some really core thing that they were doing together, right? Or a topic that had brought them together. So like a young person with a chronic illness who's stuck in some wing of a hospital, uh, being able to to email back and forth with an adult who had that same medical condition is, is doing okay. And you know, providing not just encouragement, but, you know, real practical advice on how to manage, uh, you know, that health concern. For example, there were a program in Germany, a really excellent thing for gifted girls who wanted to go into STEM careers. And they set up this bulletin board system where they had hundreds of female scientists available to just talk about anything, anytime, right? And you know, it was just speaking of weak ties, it's like, you know, you're a high school age girl on this platform and you have access to every, you know, top female scientist in Germany is at your fingertips. And so, you know, but I do think I also know I have a friend of mine who runs a program for uh, kids living abroad, you know, uh, military kids, kids at embassies, that kind of thing. Yeah, those children often uh, struggle with depression and other issues. Just, you know, living abroad as a young person can't be easy. Uh, hers is all video based, right? And I think the, the key there is she went with video for the empathy reason that you mentioned, right? When I can see a face, when I can see a spark in your eyes, when I can read your body language, it's probably easier to have some of that empathy and understanding. Um, so definitely. And just to connect two dots of what you shared, you know, I think with the decline of that 20%, I think it was of, of mentoring relationships where people hadn't gotten back in touch. Like what's, what's fascinating to me, and I know this isn't apples to apples necessarily, but there's a subset of technology tools in the space Two that come to mind are career village and Nepris. career village is a Q and a platform for young people to solicit advice from professionals, NEPRA supports industry professionals into classrooms virtually. Both of them have seen an enormous surge in volunteerism. And and I I sort of just put that out there as a to, to prompt our thinking on this may be a moment where that sort of engagement feels more feasible to adult volunteers. And I don't think that's a good thing necessarily, but it's a it's something I'm observing, I guess. And consistent with your Germany example, it's a way in which adults can engage with young people, but at a much more flexible, but at scale basis. So just something I think we should keep an eye on as the as this pandemic evolves and understanding the sorts of volunteerism that it gives rise to and the sorts of volunteerism it potentially impacts negatively. Yeah, no, great examples. And I'm, I'm familiar with, with both of those and uh, good platforms. And it's, I'm happy to hear that they're, they're kind of able to scale and, and bring more of that to young people. But weak tie plays, right? Like let's just, like we have to call them what they are and not sort of treat them as the same as um, a higher touch mentoring model. Yeah, no. And I, I appreciate you saying that. I think um, sometimes one of my biggest, you know, complaints in the mentoring space is that we treat all mentoring as if it's the same thing, right? It's not. It comes in a variety of, of shapes and sizes and flavors and and sometimes that weak time mentoring is is just as impactful as the five year relationship. It all depends on what it is you're you're trying to do, right? I want to go back and talk a little bit about uh, just social capital a little bit more broadly. One question I had when reading your book, and I'm going to try and phrase this uh, carefully here because I don't want to seem too negative about my fellow citizens, but I did find myself wondering whether Social capital is something that people in our society do want to share broadly. And, you know, you kind of open up your book talking a little bit about the fact that we as humans tend to hang out with and want to be around people that are already pretty like us. And in many ways, the point of mentoring is to be around someone who's not very much like you, a young person, often from different circumstances um, than yours. And 
And all that's good. And there's a rich exchange that happens there both directions. But, you know, we do have things in this country like, you know, hiring discrimination and, you know, the old boys network, so to speak. And it, it made me wonder that in some ways we do also hoard our social capital a little bit. We dole it out to folks that we kind of deem worthy of, of having it. And so I guess my question for you is, as you researched this, did you feel like social capital was something that, you know, did you find examples of people at scale kind of willing to give it to others that may be very different than, than the normal circles they run in? I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a really great question. So I think to let, let's start with the sort of old boys network job piece and work our way down the education pipeline, if that makes sense. So I think, so one of the sort of alarming statistics that undergirded this entire undertaking is that an estimated half of jobs come through personal connections. And there's a bunch of different research that sort of goes at that number and even suggests that it might be higher with things like unposted jobs. And so when you think about that statistic, there's a couple of really important efforts afoot in the, the quote unquote field right now to change that number. Uh, meaning, for example, skills-based hiring. So a lot of people working in post-secondary and workforce development are working really hard to make sure that employers, rather than just tapping their old boys network, are actually hiring on the basis of skills, not networks, right? Which is an incredibly important effort. And to me, my hope would be that efforts to network young people along the way are combined with efforts to uh, change discriminatory hiring practices. And the reason why I think we can't sort of give up on networks entirely in favor of a sort of perfect meritocratic skills-based hiring system is twofold. One is that employers want to hire a known quantity. And I think we have to like empathize with that. Those of us who have employed and managed people, like it's a real... <laughs> boost to actually have borne witness to someone's capabilities before you hire them. And so that um, I think that's a real dynamic and, and one that we shouldn't sort of fully try to, to chill. <laughs> the second piece, though, um, and I was actually just talking about this on a, another podcast this morning, has more to do with the power of networks along the way to, to grow. So when I was writing the book, far enough along that I couldn't decide to abandon ship, even though at any moment I wanted to, because <laughs> this was a hard um, endeavor. Uh, Adam Grant, the psychologist, wrote a piece in the New York Times telling young people and college students in particular, like, don't worry, networking doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Just do great things and the network will come to you. So I read that piece and I was like, shoot, why am I writing a book about networking? <laughs> and then I paused and I said, this magical do great things black box is not an individual endeavor. It's a networked one, right? Like we don't do great things by ourselves. We don't learn and develop on our own. And if we sort of dismiss networking as a down the line exercise that you don't need to do until you achieve greatness, we are selling so many young people short. And we are, I think, like perpetuating a, a myth of meritocracy. So um, I know I'm not answering your question quite yet, but I just wanted to get at that sort of like, why I think we need to think about twin attempts to get at that job getting moment that include both skills-based hiring and diversifying pipelines in addition to building students' networks. Now, to your original question of aren't people hoarding this, the answer is yes, they are. Um, and it doesn't maybe appear in obvious data, but one data point that we cite and this drew in part from um, your excellent work at Mentor um, and around the, the Mentor Effect data, but spending on enrichment is actually a really interesting proxy, not just for the fact that affluent kids are getting access to a huge suite of enrichment activities that may be learning and expanding their horizons, but all of the relationships that come with those enrichment activities. And some of the data on access to informal mentors reflects that, right? That young people from the bottom income quintile are reporting less access to those informal mentors. And the second piece uh, that I think is important, that's not so much hoarding in the sense of, I'm not going to help someone different from me, but that is virtue of what gets passed down through inherited networks is that it, this may be obvious, but parents with a BA or more are disproportionately networked into the knowledge economy, meaning they have more connections with professors, CEOs, Congress people. I don't know if you want to know a congressperson in 2020, but that's a separate conversation. And, and young people, of course, benefit from their parents' networks. So 
that hoarding is happening. You are correct. And I think this is a, uh, this goes back to why this concept of institutions as brokers to me is at least one important step in how we could cure that hoarding. Because rather than thinking about sort of the behaviors of discrete individuals, thinking about how could our institutions overcome some of that by being explicitly designed to combat that, I have some hope, if that makes sense. And I think that in our communities, the the Career Village and Nepris example I just gave is like a tiny window into this. There is a lot of latent social capital that our schools are not tapping into, and we're never designed to tap into. And so I I guess I want to see how it plays out to see as people try to grow these models and technologies and new approaches to learning that are more networked. Let's see what latent social capital we can first unleash um, before we declare that like there's none of it on the table because everyone's only going to help their own. That's a again, that's a little bit more hope and a little less research, but um, was the thrust of the book. No, and I appreciate that. And and I think as someone who uh, on the periphery of research myself, I would say you got to run the experiment, right? <laughs> I don't want to give up on on people's uh, willingness to do that until I know we've given it our best effort and and you know maybe it didn't work as well as we'd. We'd hoped, but my guess is you're right that if we can use institutions like schools, there's probably others we could talk about. If they're designed in a way that facilitates that, uh, I would be shocked if we didn't see more of it. Especially if we can use technology to make that easier for folks, right, and um, make their uh, giving back and support of a young person an easier lift. I want to also touch on something you mentioned because you you talked about. Uh, educated parents and the role that they play in connecting young people to other uh, highly educated uh, professional types. The other thing that struck me in reading your book was a lot of the examples that you used were these very um, high-level kind of white-collar professions, um, lawyers, doctors, uh, uh, film composer, you know, and those are all awesome careers, and I would hope that many young people aspire to those. But I also feel like America is in the middle of a very blue-collar recognition moment in that um, we're realizing the folks that make society function are often not the white-collar professionals. And so I just wanted to get your sense of how does social capital support young people that uh, may wind up in, in you know, going into blue-collar professions? Um you know, I often think of social capital and, and instinctively my mind goes to, oh, I'm going to help get you, you know, into college and into some, you know, awesome career. But not everyone can have an awesome career, right? Someone's got to be, you know, the fireman or, or taking out the garbage, right? So how does social capital play into kind of blue collar lives as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, so one thing to be clear on, I think, when we talk about sort of diversifying any young person's network beyond his or her inherited network, be that from an affluent family or a low income family, be that from parents who went to college or didn't go to college. I think like starting from an understanding of who they know and then building from there is, is like part of the thrust of what we're talking about for the, the sort of different ways in which social capital functions or not depending on different blue collar versus white collar versus I would say new collar is a whole other layer of this that communities grapple with. I, I would point to two scholars in the space who have done a lot of thinking on this. Sandra Susan Smith at UC Berkeley, um, who wrote a book called Lone Pursuit, which looked at how the working poor did and didn't leverage networks to find jobs and found, I'm going to way oversimplify her findings, but found in part that although people were still using networks for job finding, they weren't necessarily able to use those networks for upward, upwardly mobile jobs as opposed to lateral sort of job switches, and that there was some hesitation among certain subgroups to use their networks or to vouch for people in their community because they saw that as a risk with their employer. So there's a ton to unpack there. I more want to sort of cite that there's research out there on that explicit topic that I think it behooves all of us to get smarter on, particularly as we think about the array of options students may be exploring. Um, another scholar out there, Edward de Jesus, has worked for a long time at the sort of intersection of workforce development and youth development and um, social capital, and has also looked at sort of these different inroads that young people use and finds that 
young people are in fact turning to their existing networks to find jobs, right? So the, the sort of general idea that a network can provide instrumental support still holds true in, in blue collar jobs as well. So that, that's like two researchers I would point to. I think, again, if we come back to the idea of what is school's role here, my hope is that we are having a conversation that drives towards optionality. And so it's less about, oh, you're a fourth grader who's interested in STEM. You will only meet female scientists for the next 12 years of your formal education, right? Like it can't be that sort of blunt force given particularly the rapid changing dynamics of the labor market. But if we are arming young people with diversified networks across a whole range of professions, we are hopefully unlocking more options for them down the line, blue collar, white collar, new collar. Etc. Oh, I love that answer, and uh, and thank you for just very clearly stating that there is inherent value to opening up a young person's network that go far beyond where they wind up in a career or in their education. You know, I often get frustrated, to be honest, in the mentoring space because we're so and rightfully so focused on helping young people achieve and grow and go on to do these amazing things, but. You know, I, I feel like sometimes that misses a larger point, which is that uh, these relationships have inherent value. And last year, I worked on a publication around helping for mentors on how they can help youth find a sense of purpose. And the author of that, Megan Perry, uh, was very clear to not conflate purpose with profession, right? That your purpose in, in this earth can be anything you want it to be. It can be as small as taking care of, of your family or a sick relative. It can be as large as, you know, being the first man on Mars or whatever. Right? So, and it's all good, but it does mean that you get to define what that is. And, and your life has value because you are pursuing the thing that you feel gives you purpose. And, and, you know, it's, it's easy to lose sight of that sometimes when we're talking about, you know, achievement and, and closing gaps and things. And I'll say, I, like, I think we're going to get to this towards the end when I get to ask you questions. But I actually think I've, I've been taken aback by how sort of in some ways separate the education space and the mentoring space are. And I actually think purpose could be one of the bridges in the coming years that that brings these worlds together a little more because purpose is actually getting a, a lot of attention. Now, I always from an Edward Horn perspective, I always worry that it's like old wine, new bottles, (laughs) but it's getting a lot of attention in the kind of guidance and support space inside of schools. And I think both the sort of science of finding one's purpose and some of the design choices would benefit from understanding what's happened and what's worked in the mentoring space and, and probably vice versa. So last year, Julia, on this podcast, we had a, a feature that I would do at the end of each interview where I kind of said, you know, to my guests, if you had a magic wand, you know, what would you change about the mentoring space? And, you know, they'd always come up with some creative answer. This year, I was going to, I'm replacing that with something else goofy that we'll get to here in a minute. But given that you wrote this very kind of, I think, visionary and forward-thinking book, uh, I wanted to revive that old question and just ask you, if you had kind of, you know, godlike powers, if you were Thanos with the Infinity Stones or whatever, and could just snap your fingers and change something about how young people access or benefit from social capital, what would be the one thing you would just change and make better? Yeah, I can't do one. I'm going to do three, but I'm going to do them quickly. Um, the first, it, the first gets at your opportunity hoarding question. I think we need to sort of, as a society, actually confront that head on as adults, and that that would have enormous downstream effects for our young people. I think second, you'll love this one, is just measurement. Like, <laughs> we, I, I think that there are relationships being brokered that are never captured, and I think that we assume that there are relationships brokered where they're never actually sticking and that without better information, we're sort of flying blind on some of the assumptions that I just laid out for the past hour. And that worries me. And then lastly, I think I would have said this before the current crisis, and I'll say it even more loudly now. 
is the is the fact that I actually think we need to be pairing cash and connections. So just like in case it wasn't clear in some of my comments before this, like there's nothing to suggest that you can network your way out of poverty. Um, but there's also a lot to suggest that a network helps you be socially and upwardly mobile. And so I think one of the things that I hope is that as we think about resourcing young people with aid of all sorts, that we can pair that with resourcing them with relationships and that that sort of, that that those two investments would actually be greater than the sum of their parts. So. Well, thank you, Julie. I really appreciate uh, all your thoughts here and kind of explaining a bunch of pieces uh, from your book, which I encourage everyone to go out and, and take a look at if you're interested. Um, now we're at the goofy ending part of the podcast, and I call this reverse rotation, where I become the interview subject and I give my guests uh, control here for a little bit. And so, uh, Julia, you're uh, not even necessarily a mentoring person, uh, so you may have questions for me about mentoring or life in general. Anything you want to ask me, the floor is yours. Great. So I'll start with a maybe softball, maybe not softball. How did you get your current job? How did I get my current job? Well, I was working at uh, a place here in Portland uh, called Education Northwest. It's one of the regional education labs uh, funded by the Department of Education. Uh, and even though it's a primarily education-focused institution, I had been working on mentoring projects for about 15 years or so, a variety of kind of national training and TA things for um, you know, agencies that got either you know OJJDP funding for a while Department of Ed was funding some stuff. And so we were working with mentoring programs for many years, uh, kind of became known a little bit just through guidebooks and other things I'd put out. And uh, that's how David Shapiro, the CEO of Mentor, got on his radar. And, and when he took over the organization, he decided that he really wanted a research-focused position uh, in the organization so that we could uh, kind of help make sense of what we were learning about mentoring, but more importantly, teach that stuff back to people that were designing and, and running programs so that they could do their work better. So there was an opening. I applied and uh, was lucky enough to uh, to get it. Although, interestingly, it sounds like you followed the Adam Grant trajectory of you did great work. David noticed and hired you. So good to know. Um, okay. I guess, so here's my, I think this is probably many questions in one question. And given that you come a little bit from the education space, I think you'll have a really interesting answer to this. I have gone to Mentor Summit two years in a row and love the work that I get to see happening there. But I'm always struck by how much I am like a total foreigner in that space of mentoring programs as someone who hangs out in the education space. And I'm also always struck by how schools are talked about, obviously, sometimes as partners in the work, but also as, frankly, like barriers to doing good work sometimes. So I would just love to hear you riff on the various ways you think that education and mentoring could cross-pollinate either from a research perspective or a program perspective or both? Sure. No, that's a, a great question. And I think um, I noticed similar things about the the summit, uh, which is a fabulous event, but I think does not draw as broadly from all the worlds of people working with young people as, as it could. And I, I think the reason for that is that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the workshops and a lot of the work of mentor, frankly, is about uh, supporting the work of kind of what you might consider to be traditional kind of nonprofit mentoring programs, community-based programs. Um, and so, you know, but when I step back and look at mentoring kind of with a capital M very broadly, the reality is, is that most young people are going to get their mentoring not through a program but through somebody that they have met, right? And somebody that could be a next door neighbor, they could be the coach of their little league team, the the leader of their, their house of worship, uh, whoever it may be. And so when I think about it that way, I actually think there is quite a bit of, of overlap between the worlds of education and mentoring. You know, I believe teacher, if you talk about, you know, kind of natural mentors, teacher is always the top one that people mention. And also after school staff, we did a study a few years ago called The Power of Relationships and found 
a lot of folks that said, now this was a survey of adults asking, are you mentoring young people? There were a lot of adults that were in like after school programs, tutoring programs, things of that nature that felt like their work bled over into mentoring at some level, even if it was about, say, tutoring uh, primarily. So I see schools as a very relationship-rich place. And, you know, I think when schools emphasize relationships, there is a metric ton of mentoring that is happening within them. But there has to be some intentionality about it, right? And I was struck a few years ago at the summit, there was a one of the presentations on the main stage was about a principal at a school in uh, New Mexico, I believe, that had done some relationship mapping, not with the students, but with the staff of the school. And they basically put pictures up of every kid in the school on like a big wall and asked the entire faculty, who knows this kid? And they realized that there was a small but not insignificant number of children in their school who none of them really knew well, right? And it was a real eye-opener for them. And so they created some strategies to to kind of address that and to be more purposeful about it. You know, and even, even things like, you know, at my kids' school, they did uh, PBIS, the Positive Behavioral Support thing. That was very relationship-driven, and it really forced teachers to think about how they're interacting with young people, how they're responding when a young person is acting out. Um, you know, it's mostly around discipline and behavior management, but it, it wound up being about relationships more than anything. And I saw that have actually a very positive effect on my kids' school. So, so I don't know. I, I agree with you that it's hard to get educators in this space. I also think some of it is just, I wish the Department of Education funded mentoring much more directly <laughs> through ESSA and other legislation that allowed schools to spend money on relationship programming a little bit more easily. So a long answer and a complicated answer, perhaps. Can I ask one more question? Sure. Given that you're one of the leading researchers on on mentorship in the country, I, like you don't strike me based on your tone as someone who lies awake worrying at night. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. I'm making assumptions here. But if you were to lie awake worrying about how we measure the quality of mentoring relationships, like where do you think there needs to be further R&D? What are some of the blind spots in that obviously mature field of work, but still growing? That's a great question. And for the record, I am not really a mentoring researcher. I, I would say I'm, I'm research adjacent. Um, you know, I'm no David Dubois or Gene Rhodes or, or someone at that level. You know, I think there's a couple of things that we miss with mentoring. One is that um, we're often asking young people in these evaluations where you're trying to figure out, you know, did a program work or was this relationship impactful? You know, we often are asking people who are, are young and probably have trouble articulating or may not even be developmentally able to see the value of something. And we're asking them, like, as they're exiting the program at age 14, you know, hey, did this change the trajectory of your life? Did you love your mentor? It's like, no, of course not. Like, you know, why would, if I'm a, 14 year old, why would I feel like this? You know, I don't know what I don't know because I'm 14, right? And so I think, you know, what's a more interesting question, and I actually am uh, trying to get funding to do a project to, to do this here in the States, is to ask adults to reflect back on the value that they feel those folks made in their life. And there's lots of research reasons why that's not the gold standard way you do it, right? Um, if we were doing this as a true experiment, you'd give one batch of kids some mentors and the other batch none, and you track them for 30 years and see what happens. But what's interesting is, you know, David Dubois and Carla Herrera actually just did that recently with, they followed up with the original cohort of young people from that 1990s Big Brothers Big Sisters study and found them all these years later, tracked down all you know, 1,400 participants or whatever, both the kids who got mentors and those who who didn't at the time, and, you know, found not a ton of differences in how their lives had turned out. Um, you know, it was kind of a mixed bag of findings. They actually came on the podcast here, and we, we talked about it a little bit. 
But one of the things they said that really stuck with them, and once again, it's qualitative, it's a little anecdotal, but I, I think it's true, is that so many of these people, particularly folks for, that kind of didn't have a great relationship with their mentor, there were lots of people that lamented that missed opportunity. It wasn't until they got into their 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, and saw how life played out for them that they realized, man, I didn't take advantage of that opportunity. That person was trying to help me in a way that in the moment, I didn't even understand that they were like, you know, I just got presented with this random person to be like my mentor. I'm like, who are you? Like, But in retrospect, they realized that that was either a missed opportunity or in some cases they would tell them that I didn't realize that their advice was meaningful until you know, I was 30 and in a job and I had some situation come up and I remembered some kernel of advice that this person had planted in my head 20 years ago and it helped me in this moment. So I often think there is this hidden impact of relationships and mentoring that we don't even know about. Like it's it's part of the fabric of just our lives. And that is why I often get frustrated when people ask me, What's the value of mentoring? What's the return on investment? Oh, I hate that phrase with a passion because I'm like, well, that's trying to ask like, what's the return on investment of love or friendship? You know, not everything needs to be monetized and, you know, not everything, you don't know the answer to everything 10 seconds later, right? And I often feel just to answer your question that when we're looking at mentoring relationships, we're often not seeing the whole picture because that that's something that's going to play out over time in a thousand imperceptible ways. And so, you know, to me, the best argument for mentoring is not financial. It's not around, you know, equality or equity or all those things are all important. But to me, it's about, it's a moral imperative. It's a human right, right? And so to me, yes, I like research. I will always want to be measuring things about mentoring or you know, evaluating the effectiveness of programs, that's important, but it's not the reason for mentoring. The reason for mentoring is just, that's what it means to be human, I think at some level. So. Yep. Absolutely. Great answer, Mike. Thank you for indulging that one. Yeah, no, thank you, Julie. And and this has been a really great conversation. I appreciate your time. I know you have many other things on your plate, so I'll let you go here, but I encourage everyone uh, go find uh, Julia's book. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, Who You Know. Uh, it's a really great introduction, I think, to the topic, but also how our schools can perhaps reimagine their work a little bit differently and, and provide more of that to young people. So thank you, Julia, for your time today. Thanks to OJJDP for their sponsorship of this podcast. And uh, just a reminder, you can uh, find other episodes of this podcast on the National Mentoring Resource Center website. It's at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org. Uh, sorry for the long URL there, but if you just type that in, you'll get there. And if you also want some help uh, improving any aspect of your program, there's free technical assistance available through the center, and we encourage programs to click on that big red get help button and get help if you need to improve something in your program. Like, oh, I don't know how you provide social capital and networking to young people. So uh, thanks for joining us today. And, and remember, even though that mentoring is grounded in love and kindness and understanding, there is also research and science happening behind it. And so I appreciate you joining us today, learning a little bit more about that science and hopefully applying what you learned to your work with young people. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research. 